So the first words from Ramana Maharshi say, just as the spider emits the thread of the web out of itself and again withdraws it into itself, likewise the mind projects the world out of itself and again resolves it into itself. When the mind comes out of the self, the world appears. Therefore, when the world appears to be real, the self does not appear. And when the self shines, the world does not appear. When one persistently inquires into the nature of the mind, the mind will end leaving the self as the residue. The question reads, Acharyaji Pranam, I don't understand how this mind is the cause of the world. As I look at objects, people, their form, quality, memories, likes and dislikes arise automatically in the mind. Experiences get shadowed by my personality inevitably. Am I living in imaginations? What is attentiveness while I relate to the world? How can I see the world clearly as it is instead of seeing through my ego? You would do well to not to try to develop a framework out of the words of an Upanishadic seer or a Ramana Maharshi. What is being said here is subtle. One needs understanding, not a paradigm. One needs realization not a conceptual framework about the self, the mind, the world. But that's what we would rather have. If we do that, then it's quite adolescent. Then it becomes a standard eight thing. some immature model that says here is the self and from this self arises the mind and the mind projects the world and when the world is projected by the mind then the mind looks only towards the world the mind does not look towards the self the self is behind the mind 
So the mind becomes totally oblivious to the presence of the self and the mind gets preoccupied with the world and therefore the self remains invisible and forgotten. And then on the other hand, under other conditions, when the mind that arises out of the self is looking towards the self, then the world is behind the back of the mind and then the mind can blissfully forget the world and wallow in the anand of the self. Nice. But kiddish. Just try to go deep into it instead of trying to put it into coherent language. You say that the world exists. Hmm? These are just tidbits. A few statements. I will not conclude. I will leave them to you. So you say that the world exists. How is it so that the one who says that the world exists, his form and the form of the world are both three-dimensional. How is it so that your body is three-dimensional and the world too is three-dimensional? How is it so that the seer and the seen both exist in the same material dimension? Hmm? Is there any proof of the existence of the world except your bodily senses? Does there exist a proof? Remove the relationship between the body and the world and then ask yourself how do I Prove that the world is existent. Remove your relationship with the world. Are you existent? Remove the relationship between your senses and the world. Does the world exist anymore? Does it? All right. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. 
Open your eyes. A while back, did the waving hand exist for you? Next. When you are in deep sleep and all your senses are gone, then do you exist? Take these two together. Don't be in a hurry to conclude. When your eyes close, the hand, the waving hand does not exist for you. Or does it? It does not, right? And when all your senses close, even you do not exist. Do you exist in your deep sleep? Are you there? Do you have a shape, a form, a name, an identity? Do you exist at all? The material shape of the world appears to have something to do with the material shape of the human being. There seems to be a definite correlation between these things that perceive the world and the very appearance of the world itself. Science does not go into it. Science says if it is to be seen, if it is to be touched, if it has weight, then it exists. Science believes in the primacy of the senses. For science, senses are the truth. And senses include the mind, that's the sixth sense. Even though science asks the proof for everything, the proof has to be sensual. Experiments have to come up with the proof, so the proof has to be experiential, correct? Because the proof definitely comes from scientific experiments, therefore the proof is necessarily experiential. And who experiences? The senses. Correct. So even when the scientist says that something exists in the universe or something exists within the atom, the ultimate faith that he has is on his own senses. Do you see this? The quark exists and the supernova exists because I validate them both. I feel their existence. I certify their existence. I see their existence. There is something within my sensual domain that ratifies their existence. Are you getting it? Science never goes into the certifying agency itself. There is no proof of the pillar except your eyes and except the physical shock that you get when you collide against the pillar. 
Correct? Both physical. So what ratifies the physical world? Your own physicality. If you could just pass through the pillar, does the pillar exist at all? Why do you say nothing exists in space? Because you pass through space without any collision. Correct? And hence, you very happily and confidently claim a space is empty. Empty to whom? Empty to you, the bodied one. You have no proof of emptiness of space except your own body. What nonsense. Something as basic as emptiness of space has no proof at all except the human body. Oh, you could say, no, 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 even the stone passes uninterrupted through space, so that is proof. But what is the proof of the stone? The fact that you can hold it in your hand. So ultimately, all your trust is upon your own body. Advait Vedanta takes these observations very seriously. Very seriously. Hmm? And so far we have talked of the so-called material reality. Now let's move into the other aspect of reality which is more subtle, more psychic. For we do not live merely in gross objects. We also live, rather we live more in our concepts, beliefs, imaginations, ideas. Right? That's where we spent most of our existence and time. Alright. When do you call something as existent? When it has something to do with you, correct? Otherwise, does it exist? Tell me. Oh, technically you would say it does exist. But does it exist for you? Why do you bother about the universe? Why do you bother about the universe? When you say, I want to study the universe. Let's say as a physicist, you want to study the universe. Why do you want to study the universe? Because it is your universe. You are a resident of this universe, aren't you? Hmm? And therefore, all your interrogation, all your inquiry into the universe begins from where you are. So first of all, you want to explore your native village, then your state, then the country, then the ocean, then the other continents, then your old solar system, hmm? and then your own galaxy, and so on and so forth. Getting it? So, even the fact of existence of material reality has a psychic angle to it. Material just does not exist on its own. Material exists because it is our material. Isn't it our universe? Isn't it our universe? You do not merely live in a house. You live in 
your house. And therefore your house lives in you. It's your house that matters to you. In the psychic sense, does the house of some commoner in Mongolia even exist for you? Does it? As you sit here, does that switchboard at the back of the room really exist for you? Does it? Don't conclude. Just let it sink. Next. Even if something does exist for you, is the thing the same for each of you? Did these words mean the same thing to each of you? Ah, beloved! Did each of you hear the same word and see the same face? Did you? Did that happen? If it happened, it's scary. So tell me it didn't happen. <laughs> Did that happen? Mukesh is saying nothing happened. Use some other example. Are you getting it? First of all, the very material existence of the world seems to have something to do with our own material existence. And secondly, it is not material existence that is material to us. What matters to us is not the materiality of the matter. What matters to us is our psychic relationship with the matter. Are you getting it? Hmm? So, the Vedanti could not ignore this fact because this is the fact that runs through our life. What else is life? A sequence of things, events, people we give importance to, right? A dead body does not give importance to anything. Nothing happens to it. Happening itself is an act of importance. Do you see this? If you don't give something any importance, did it happen to you at all? And that which we register, that which we give importance to, is something intimately linked to us. I am giving importance to this. First of all, its shape, size, the very being, the very existence is analogous to my own. And secondly, the fact that I prefer to hold this in my hand rather than something else 
tells less about this and more about myself. Are you getting it? Hmm? And so then, in a poetic way, the seer exclaimed, Ah, the world is me and I am the world. It's a poetic expression. It does not mean you are the pillar. Don't start feeding the pillar or clothing the pillar or kissing the pillar. Words are very incapable when they try to communicate something very tender, very subtle. It becomes a ridicule. It turns into some kind of a flat joke. The great utterances of the seers that the world is your own projection has turned into some kind of a joke. It always was in the hands of people who didn't understand. But the seers had no option. Ramana Maharshi had no option. He had to operate within the limits of language. So he tries to model it. He tries to present you in some kind of a framework. But the framework is not the real thing. It has to sink in. He says, oh, the self, the true self is like the spider that emits the web. And the web is the world. And sometimes the spider just takes the whole thing back into itself and then the world disappears. This is a pointer. Just meant to arouse something within you. Just meant to align your attention to some right direction. And it is meant to cure the ego. The ego survives on otherness. The ego thrives on feelings of victimization or conquest, attainment or loss, nearness or separation. This is what keeps the ego running. The observations that we just went into bring some humility to the ego. They tell it, see, it all is related to you. A conquest is meaningful only if somebody else has been conquered, right? That's what we want to gloat about, no? I went and conquered another country. Similarly, there is pleasure in feeling a victim only if somebody else is to be blamed. Otherwise, it becomes another humiliation. First of all, you have been harmed. And secondly, it turns out to be a case of self-harm. 
Hmm? As they say, insult added to injury. Victim, playing the victim card is good fun only if somebody else can be claimed to have harmed you. Otherwise, being a victim is no fun. Similarly, conquest is pleasurable only if you have been able to occupy somebody else's house. What fun is claimed there in claiming that, you know what, today I was able to enter my own bedroom. Why are you feeling so puffed up about it? It's your own bedroom. Otherness is necessary if you want to have that pleasure. In that sense, all pleasures are vicarious pleasures. Hmm? Indirect, second-handed, requiring the presence of the other, requiring the presence of a medium. That's incidentally also the difference between spiritual joy and worldly pleasure. Spiritual joy does not require a medium, a cause, an other. And carnal pleasure is always mediated by the world firstly and then by your senses. There is double mediation. First of all, there has to be a material object and secondly, there has to be a psychic agency that interprets that object. Only then you can get some pleasure, right? What do you require to feel pleasured by great food? First of all, you require great food. Secondly, you require to be awake. So you require two things. One, the material presence of food. Secondly, your psychic availability to the food. If your nostrils cannot take in the aroma, does food exist for you? If your eyes cannot look at the dishes, do they exist for you? So there is not much fun in the usual fun. It comes to you through two mediators. Not much fun. Joy, no mediator required. Self enjoying self. Hmm? It's a stinking example, but it's almost like a kid happily rolling in its own potty. Sorry. Can't help it. That's spiritual joy. I do not require anybody else. My own potty is enough. I'll roll in it and see how glad I am. I don't try that. I didn't, seriously didn't mean it. Hmm? And adults will have other versions of it. Don't even try. But all this is besides the point. We were not talking about joy. We were talking about whether 
the world is you and you are the world and whether the relationship between the self and the mind is that of the spider and its web. Getting it? We are designed to live in a feeling of otherness. We are designed to give utmost importance to the diverse objects we see in front of us. That's our physical constitution. That's how the whole game of Prakriti has evolved. But that's also our psychic undoing. That's also what keeps us so restless. This perpetual confidence that I am just this much and therefore insecure and therefore lonely. Am I not? And this exists totally independent of me. If it exists totally independent of me, then this surely has the capacity to bring something new to my life. Oh, opportunity. Is this not a fundamental belief to our carnal existence? This exists totally independently of me. And the senses do everything to validate this statement. You might faint right now. Does this faint away too? It does not. You may walk out of this room. Does this walk out as well? It does not. You have a fever. Does this too raise its temperature? It does not. So you have all the reasons to feel as if this exists totally independently of you. Remember, where you think something is totally independent of you, there the thing becomes some kind of a beacon of hope. If it is independent, then it will bring something new to you, won't it? Independent means totally separate. Independent means having nothing to do with you. If it has nothing to do with me, then its existence will have unknown, unseen and therefore tempting possibilities. And therefore I will live in constant appreciation of this. I will keep giving it importance. This then will be my world if I keep feeling that this is independent of me. Advait Vedant, of which Ramana Maharshi is one of the foremost proponents, does not allow you to feel that this is independent of you. Call it spirituality, call it philosophy, call it basic wisdom, call it common sense. This is not independent of you. This is an agreement with you. There is a hidden agreement between you and this. You know what the agreement is? I will make myself available to you as per your terms and conditions. You can perceive only in three dimension, 
I will appear to you only in three dimension. Don't you see there is an agreement? You can realize only the physical properties of weight, touch, smell, etc., etc. I will come to you only with those properties. There is an agreement here. If you can see that there is an agreement, then you are a Vedanti. If you cannot see that there is an agreement, then the agreement becomes a conspiracy and the conspirator is called in Advait as Maya. Therefore, Advaitvaz is also sometimes called as Mayavad. If you can see it, then you are a Vedanti. If you cannot see it, then you are prey to Maya. So Advaitvaz is also Mayavad. This is not independent of you. The ones who appear so important to you are important to you because of you. There is nobody else who is according them their importance but you. Things do not carry any objective importance. This should not be too hard to see. And if you can see this, that things do not carry any objective importance, Vedant spurs you on to also see that things do not carry any objective existence. Now that's harder, right? When it came to importance, we could see that. Yes, the importance that I give to this is a function of my condition, my situation, my likes, my dislikes, my conditioning. That much can be appreciated. That this does not really have an objective importance. He may place a higher value upon it than, than she does. Vedant takes a step ahead. It says, not only does it have no objective importance, it also has no objective existence. And that is what being, is being reflected in the Maharishi here, when he says that the world is just like the web of the spider. It comes from you, and if you are in the right mood, it retreats back into you. If you are in a bad mood, exploitative mood, the fly appears very delicious, then the web keeps on expanding. What else is the purpose of the web? Get the fly. Whenever the fly will become very important to you, you will create a great universe of your own. It, you can call it the world wide web, you know. Vedant knew about it. It's the world itself is a web. You have the world wide web only today. Getting it. Don't conclude. It is a thing to be lived. Hmm? It's not a formula in mathematics or a model in physics. Don't be so crude towards it. 
It is a thing of constant remembrance. It is a thing of practice. You have to continuously see this as you move through life. Time means that one object after the other will keep entering your sensual field. That's what time is, right? The flux in your sensual field. So you have to constantly remember because the flux is without intermission. So the remembrance also has to be continuous. Nothing great has happened. The ceiling hasn't collapsed upon your head. Nothing is so very important. Why are you so ecstatic? And why are you so depressed? The importance that you are giving to anything, something, whatever, is your own little mischief. Why are you becoming a victim to your own whims and mischiefs? First of all, you decide to give importance to this. Importance that it does not have on its own. You picked up importance and attached to it. It didn't have it. It's, it's a me thing. It's yours. It's called importance. You can put it anywhere. Just about anywhere. This is not important. This is importance. You can put it here, you can put it here, you can put it here. And then when something happens to this, as happens to everything in the universe, as happens to your own body as well, then you start crying, as if something very important has happened. Maharishi's words liberate you from this psychotic roller coaster. Sometimes happy, sometimes sad. Unnecessarily jubilant. Unnecessarily gloomy. Do you get this? This is not merely a philosophy. When philosophy becomes a thing to be lived, it is called religion. That's the difference between the West and East, particularly India. For the West, philosophy has been largely a mental thing. Let's think, let's think, let's think. Of course, if you think some, about something a lot, then sooner than later it will percolate into your life. But that was not the objective of thinking. People would think as if thinking were an independent pursuit.
India didn't have philosophers. Rather, India didn't have standalone philosophers. If you are a philosopher, you are also religious. Philosophy had to attain its culmination, its peak, its purity in religion. That only means that now you have to live it. If you know it, how can you just know it? The knowing must transform into being. Hmm? Basic honesty. And that is what is also demanded right now. Don't think about these things. Otherwise, you'll go mad. Somebody asked me, if that truck is my own projection, why did it run over me? After all, the truck is just my own projection. I kept standing in front of it and smiling very wisely. I know who you are. You don't exist. I have just projected you. And the next thing I find is that I am under the wheels. Not quite crushed. But being beaten up by the driver and the cleaner. It's not so crude. It's not so gross. It's not so physical. You aren't really projecting that giant thing there in a material way. Somebody asked, if I project everything, then how is it that if I leave the towel in the washroom and totally forget it, the towel is still there the next day when I return? After all, I had totally forgotten it. If I had totally forgotten it, then how is it still there? If it is my own projection, then it should have disappeared. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Are we talking nursery rhymes? Humpty Dumpty went up the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. But the wall was just a projection. So why did Humpty Dumpty break their head? Acharyaji, Vedanta is foolish. Humpty Dumpty is the proof. Vedanta is not for the Humpties and the Dumpties of the world. You go change your diaper. That's what suits you. Better. But the mind tries humptiness, dumptiness at everything. I am constantly urging you to avoid that tendency. Do not try to turn this into some kind of a model. 
bringet 